So February is Heart Health Month, and I have a very special guest joining me on the podcast. He's the author of a truly groundbreaking book called Understanding the Heart, but he also is a survivor of what is referred to sometimes as a widowmaker heart attack, because only about 12% survive this type of heart attack. Dr. Stephen Hussey not only survived, he's thriving. And he's here to give us a truly new understanding of the heart. Welcome to the Perfect Metabolism Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Vance. I'm a nutritionist, yoga instructor, and author of the book, The Perfect Metabolism Plan. I've been focused on metabolism optimization for over a decade. And I'm here to tell you that contrary to popular opinion, it doesn't have to be all downhill after we hit 40. This podcast is general in nature not medical advice, and for informational purposes only. Talk to your doctor if you have questions about how this information applies to you. So on today's podcast, I'm thrilled to have my very first guest. Dr. Stephen Hussey obtained his doctorate of chiropractic and his master's in human nutrition and functional medicine from the University of Western States in Portland, Oregon. He's the author of two books, The Health Evolution and Understanding the Heart, Surprising Insights into the Evolutionary Origins of Heart Disease and Why It Matters. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Hussey. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. Um, your book is amazing. And I'm just, I just kind of am scratching the surface getting into it. The list of references are extremely impressive. So I know that a lot of effort and a lot of energy and went into this book and it's really kind of mind-blowing reading it. So I'm so excited to take a deep dive and pick your brain and and learn from you today. Um, so two of my favorite things to do on this podcast are tell stories and bust myths. And today we are going to do those both. Um, <laughs> so, but what I'd like to, you have a truly remarkable story. Um, and I know your health story kind of starts from a young age. So I know you know, there's some kind of stuff that affected your health later on in life. And so I'd love to kind of turn it over to you and have you kind of tell us your health story. Of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's an important thing to tell uh, for anybody. I mean, that's why we're all interested in health. It's our own health journeys uh, that bring us to this, this space. Um, and so, yeah, mine started very young. Uh, I, as a kid, you know, from the age of two, I had a lot of very inflammatory conditions, you know, quote unquote, inflammatory. They were everything from asthma to allergies to, you know, IBS uh, to um, I used to break out in hives all over my body, just huge hives. And the doctors really couldn't tell me, you know, why. Um, and so my family and I were kind of thrown into this world of Western medicine to help us, quote unquote, manage these conditions. Um, and despite managing them, you know, I ultimately ended up with autoimmune type one diabetes, or at least autoimmunity is the theory, uh, which is another inflammatory type thing. So, you know, now, um, I was diabetic and we're just kind of, again, managing these conditions. And, you know, it wasn't until college that I started to realize that I could change the way I live my life and had a direct impact on my ability to manage and then mostly cure these conditions aside from the type one diabetes, this kind of like collateral damage from, you know, that, uh, those inflammatory conditions as a kid. And I thought that it was interesting, you know, that I never really heard that from physicians that I could 
change the way that my life or change my diet or change lots of different things and, you know, get rid of a lot of these things. Um, and so that was curious to me and it kind of spawned a journey into health, uh, and lifestyle. Um, and so, you know, then I went and got more formal training after college, a master's degree, doctorate in chiropractic. And I learned a lot of things, uh, in those degrees, but a lot of what I learned turned out, I, I feel to be wrong or not the whole story at least. Um, but anytime that I learned anything about the heart, uh, my ears perked up because my whole childhood, I've been told I'm heavily predisposed to heart disease because of type one diabetes. Um, and so I was trying to learn as much as I could and, and, you know, I was doing a lot of research and, you know, I guess, I guess it was three and a half years ago now, almost, um, you know, despite my best efforts, I, one Tuesday morning woke up and, uh, did my usual routine and, uh, did a pretty intense workout. And about 15 minutes later, I had a heart attack, um, a massive heart attack, a hundred percent blockage of my left anterior descending artery, wow. um, which was crazy because, you know, all my metabolic markers were good. Cardiometabolic risk factors, very low inflammation. Um, I had a CAC score, which is a measure of like calcified plaque in your arteries, uh, which they say is a good indicator um, of risk for heart disease, whether or not you're going to have a heart attack. And that was zero, which is the best score you can get. Um, yet six months later, I have this heart attack. Um, and so, you know, obviously that set me back is like, as far as my, my headspace, you know, like what, why did this happen? Uh, no one could really explain it to me. And I kind of, you know, I had, I had started writing the book and, and I kind of decided, well, I'm not going to release this, you know, this information on the heart that I have, that I've done all this research. Um, I'm a hypocrite, you know? And, and so I was kind of, you know, down on myself at that point. And it was during COVID so nobody was allowed in the hospital. I was sitting there by myself. Um, and then, you know, after the heart attack, you know, it's one of the instances I was thankful for Western medicine. They they did save my life in that instance. It's one of three times that Western medicine has saved my life. Um, but after the fact, the three days I spent in the hospital recovering, um, I got to see firsthand how misinformed and how, I guess, bad the care was, you know, and how... Um, I don't know, lacking their understanding of what the heart is and what heart disease is and why this happened to somebody like me, they couldn't really tell me. And so that kind of reinvigorated me a little bit as far as like, wow, um, there's going to be other people who go through this, unfortunately, and they're going to be in the hospital, you know, at the, at the whims of what they're, what I'm being told here, which I know is wrong, whether it was medication advice, whether it was dietary advice, whether it was any type of advice, it was, it was not what the research shows based on all the research I had just done for this book. Um, and that was disturbing to me. So I decided to release the book anyways, um, with a little bit different of an intro <laughs> because I had to introduce this, this idea about the heart attack, um, and, and what happened and, and why it happened. And, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that that happened and why it happened is because I was accepting or rejecting a paradigm, which was cholesterol causes heart disease. Um, and if you're metabolically healthy, then you won't get heart disease. And I was rejecting, um, you know, the lipid theory of hypo the hypothesis of heart disease, but I wasn't replacing it with another theory. Mm. And that was my mistake. Um, and now I'm very aware of what that theory is and what, got, what we got to replace it with. Because it's one thing to say cholesterol doesn't cause heart disease, which is accurate based on all the literature. 
Um, they say half of all heart attacks happen in people with normal cholesterol. So there's not exactly. even an association with it with that. Right. Which, but there's another thing to say, we have to replace it with something. We have to give it a different theory. And that's what I had missed. Um, and it explains a lot of why I had the heart attack. But yeah, it's a story that brought me even closer to the heart, so to speak. Um, and uh, and my exploration of how to keep it healthy and why it gets diseased. That's interesting. Wow, it's amazing. I, I always kind of joke that God gave me my health conditions that I had. And I, you know, mine weren't as extreme as yours, but they started when I was young. And I, you know, my dad was a doctor, he was a transplant surgeon. And, you know, we always, I just handed my health over to my doctor my whole life, just going, well, fix this, fix that. And finally, years later, I realized, well, oh my gosh, what's at the end of my fork and and my lifestyle and my stress and all of that affects it. And so, you know, I think it's, it's interesting, the doctor being a patient, you know, they always joke mm -hmm. that doctors the worst patients because they don't want to be patients. Because I, one of the things that struck me reading your book is that they want, you know, they expect you to be passive. Like you were wanting to be an active participant in managing your diabetes the way you had known to do for decades. And you wanted to understand what the meaning of all these medications were. And they didn't want you to know. I, it just seemed like this passivity was was wanted. Yeah, it was, it was very much, you know, they had a cookie cutter approach to what to do with someone who has a heart attack like that. And regardless of, you know, the, you know, differences in people, that's the recipe that you get. You get these medications, you get this uh, recommendation and, you know, you know, do it and don't ask questions. Right. And so, you know, I wasn't combative, you know, I, I was getting these recommendations and I was just questioning them. And at that point I was doubting myself and I was like, literally, I just want your opinion because I want to know what happened to me. And they didn't seem interested in what happened to me. All they seemed interested in was again, their cookie cutter recipe. You do this, you do this. And I'd asked, you know, can you come explain this test to me? Can you some explain your rationale for this medication and why someone like me would need it? Um, you know, and, and, I had to like pull teeth to get them to come in and actually sit down and and do that. And, and it was the, the most troublesome thing. Cause you know, it's Western medicine and I'm very familiar with Western medicine. I understand the shortcomings of it. So I didn't, I half didn't expect them to be receptive to my questions. Mm. However, it was the shutdown of conversation completely. Or if it was a topic they didn't want to talk about, it was like, it was literally someone told me, a doctor told me, I don't know anything about that. So I'm not going to talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's fine. Uh, but it's just no curiosity, you know, and that's, that's a huge issue because if we're going to figure out what causes these things, you have to have curiosity. You can't just, you know, do what you're told and regurgitate the same thing over and over again. Um, because, I mean, the, the biggest evidence is that it's not working. Heart disease is still the number one killer in the United States, despite these latest drugs and latest technologies. Uh, and it's growing. It's not just staying stable. It's it, the heart rate, heart disease rates are growing. Yeah. And in their defense, in a way, I don't know if they have the time to really be curious. They're just so, you know, they're so busy and overworked and, and have so many patients that they only really have the time to do what, what is the standard of care. So mm -hmm. I can understand that it's hard, but yeah, the curiosity. I think that, you know, there's a lot of conventional allopathic doctors that have taken the time to really look into alternative medicine and recognize that there are benefits. So it's possible, but I think in those ERs, it's, they're just slammed. 
Yeah. So um, looking back, you had mentioned you kind of thought about some of the factors that may have been been at play for you, despite all your numbers looking perfect. What do you think was kind of the things that kind of set you up to have that happen? Yeah. Well, ultimately, it's it's things that encourage clotting, uh, which makes sense. You know, heart disease is a clot that forms. Uh, stroke is a clot that forms. Atherosclerosis, you know, is we're told that it's this buildup of cholesterol, but actually there's no cholesterol in, present in atherosclerotic tissue. It's clotting tissue, uh, 87%, according to some studies, clotting tissue. So it's things that encourage clotting. And there's many things that can do that. Um, so the three you know, standards that um, induce clotting are damage to the lining of the artery, poor blood flow or turbulent blood flow, interrupted blood flow, and elements of blood sticking together too readily, right? So those things can encourage this clotting thing to happen. Um, hydration is also pretty important. You got to have enough fluid for things to move through. If they don't, they kind of get pumped up. Um, and so in my case, um, I had been going through an extreme amount of stress uh, prior to this. And then um, a day and a half before I had the heart attack, I received probably probably the most stressful news I've gotten in my entire life. Um, and it's a young life and, you know, but it's, it's still, it was the most stressful to me. And it wasn't just the stress, uh, that news of that news. It was the inability to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. um, neither me nor my family could help this person um, in our family. Um, and so we were just all kind of sitting, waiting that, hoping it would resolve itself, not really able to do anything. Um, and so that was, that's the worst kind of stress. If people are wondering like that type of stress where you feel out of control is literally the worst for our health based on the research. Um, so there's that kinds of things, you know, I'm heavily predisposed to uh, heart disease because of type one diabetes. So during stress, it's very hard to control blood sugars. And these things were inducing this inflammation. Um, and if you look at acute stresses, um, the clotting factors in the blood go up, like pretty much all of them go up tremendously. Um, so those things were encouraging that. And then, you know, I was looking back, I was pretty dehydrated at the time. I was not drinking enough water, not getting enough electrolytes, um, you know, my own fault there. And then unwisely, I decided to do, I, I decided to live the same way I usually do under this stress. Mm -hmm. And that is wake up on in the morning uh, and do my intense interval training workout um, that I usually do. And so that created a surge of blood flow, but it also created inflammation that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's black. And, and then 15 minutes later, after the workout, my blood calmed down. And as soon as it got slow enough, it clotted, wow. um, you know, no stenosis anywhere, no atherosclerosis, um, just an acute clot big enough to block the artery formed. I think you bring up such a good point that, you know, we put, press that override button. We just like ignore mm -hmm. that we're going through this massive, like maybe perhaps like you said, the most stressful point of our life. And we're like, I'm just going, you know, and I think it's just kind of a typical thing that we do. I, you know, people say all the time, well, I didn't feel like working out, but I pushed through and I'm like, well, you know, maybe your body was trying to tell you something, maybe, you know, and so I think that's such a good point to recognize that, you know, that pattern of, because it's such an American thing to put the gas pedal down all the way down to the floor and never, you know, put the brake on and, and not viewing, you know, the resting and, and when the body is going through something that we need to listen and maybe take a step back. So I think that's very wise to, mm -hmm. 
recognize. Yeah, I had a I had a, a coach, a strength coach, um, who I think back to this on because you know we had our training program that we were trying to meet and do certain lifts each day to get to a certain point during the season, yeah. and but he was always a huge proponent of when we walked into the gym that day. He's and we're supposed to lift this much according to our program, and he would say, if you don't feel like you can do that, lift what you can lift today based on how you feel. You're going to get more out of that than you would trying to reach this um, this arbitrary number um, based on what this the program design is. If you don't feel like it today because you're sore, because you're sick, because whatever, like don't do it. Um, do what you think you can, uh, which I've you know I didn't pay attention to that morning. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was just an that's kind of an important lesson that I think back on now. Yeah, it's amazing. So many years of my life, I thought symptoms were things to like get rid of and. <laughs> when I started to go, oh, wait, it's the body talking to me. So I need to kind of tune in a little bit and listen. Um, so I want to get into this amazing, and we could talk probably for an hour about your story, but I want to get into this amazing book of yours. What, you know, was prompted you initially to write about the heart specifically? Yeah. I mean, most of it was, I've talked about my predisposition to heart disease, but, you know, I've always just been a very curious person. Um, and so, especially when I figured out that well, what medicine told me as far as my own health conditions as a child wasn't the best way to deal with them or manage them or get rid of them. And so I just started looking into things and, you know, I had this formal education, you know, in medicine and you learn what they teach you. Um, but the more and more I read about things, the more I realized that a lot of what I learned uh, was either wrong or not the whole story, especially considering heart disease. So you know, I've just been open to everything. Like I would just read things, even if they sounded crazy, I'd read them. And if I thought they sounded crazy, I'd be like, oh, they sound crazy. But then I'd read some things and down the line, I'd be like, oh, maybe that last thing wasn't so crazy, yeah. you know? And so I just, this constant learning and open-mindedness. And I realized I had this um, large body of information about the heart. And I was like, well, it's interesting. And lots of it's contrary to what, you know, I was taught. And so I started sharing it on social media and people seemed to like it. Um, so I decided to kind of put it all down, uh, in a book and then, you know, it, and we had a book. So yeah, that's how I found you on Instagram. You have a really good account. I love what you post. Um, so I want to start with some heart myths and I think maybe perhaps the most striking one is that maybe we don't even really understand what the heart does. Like we have this idea that it pumps blood throughout our body and you're kind of saying it doesn't do that. Right. Right. Yeah. There's a very large body of evidence uh, that uh, shows that the heart is not the main mover of the blood. Um, it does do a small bit of pumping, but it's no more than enough to, to move the blood through the chambers of the heart itself. Um, once the blood leaves the heart, uh, there are other mechanisms that move the blood. Um, but even like early uh, anatomists and scientists exploring the body had doubts about the heart being able to force, create enough force to move blood throughout the entire body. Um, and if you look at it, it's, it's kind of impossible. The heart, the size of ours could move blood that far, um, that far and that forcefully to get around all the bends and small little capillaries and everything. Uh, it doesn't make sense. Um, and so, yeah, there's blood actually moves through a mechanism. Well, a few different mechanisms. The main one is, structured water. So water has the ability to hold energy. And when it does, it actually structures itself into this fourth phase. So it's not solid, not liquid, not gas. It's kind of between solid and liquid. It's kind of more like a gel. So people can think like jello or the consistency of a raw egg white. Um, that kind of consistency is what this water becomes. 
And so um, research has shown that this water does indeed form on the lining of an artery um, because it forms on all water-loving surfaces, which are all biological surfaces are water-loving. And because it forms there, um, and because of the way that it forms, it actually creates an energy gradient where there's a positive charge next to a negative charge, a charge separation, which if people are familiar with putting a battery into something, you know that you have to put the positive and negative charge in certain areas. And so that energy gradient, that charge separation creates energy that does the work of moving fluid. And they've shown this in the lab of Dr. Gerald Pollock at University of Washington. Um, you can put a hydrophilic tube in water and apply radiant energy in the form of infrared light to it. And the water starts to move through the tube with no pump necessary whatsoever. And they've shown that this does indeed happen in, in, um, in animals like chick embryos. Um, so this is how the blood moves. So the blood is moved by the structured water. Yeah. And how does water become structured? Yeah. So when water holds energy from the main source being infrared light, but it can if it can absorb a lot of different forms of energy. Um, but infrared light is the most structuring to water. So water is um, H2O, right? Two hydrogens, one oxygen. And when water holds energy and it gets next to a water-loving surface, like all biological surfaces, um, it actually cleaves off one of the hydrogens. And then the oxygen and hydrogen that are left team up with other oxygens and hydrogens that have also cleaved off a hydrogen. And they form this lattice-like structure. They kind of connect up rather than being like water molecules floating around, you know, like this, which makes it a liquid. They kind of lightly bond up, not as hard as ice, but they kind of lightly bond up. And so it makes this, um, this honeycomb-like structure that kind of lines up like fence panels on this hydrophilic surface. And it's more like a gel. It's the consistency of a gel. And so because the oxygen is very electronegative, and it doesn't have two hydrogens balancing it out. So there's more electronegativity than structured water is very electronegatively charged. Mm -hmm. And those hydrogens that were cleaved off are very positively charged. And so they line up next to this, this negatively charged area. And so that creates this charge separation of a negative area next to a positive. And that creates energy. And it does the energy of moving fluid. So not only does it, it creates the, the movement of fluid, but also all those hydrogen ions those positively charged hydrogen ions are, are similarly charged. So they try and get away from each other and that creates this motion and it starts going oh. um, and it moves the fluid. So are there some things that cause that pro process not to work as well? And then other things that encourage it to work better? Yeah. So ultimately, this is a big discussion, but life in general is the ability to hold charge in your body. Wow. Um, electric, hold, right. Yeah. Hold yeah. negative charge. And we all know this. Like anybody who's gone and learned cellular physiology knows that the cells hold a net negative charge. Um, and the changing in that charge is, is what happens during what's called an action potential, which does work and, and makes different signals happen in the body. Yeah. Um, but this net negative charge is really important. And that net negative charge is created by structured water if we have good structured water. So increasing the amount of charge in your body through different forms of energy, which we can talk about if you want, um, will help increase the structural water. But there are things that can negatively affect structural water or the ability of water to structure itself. One, it's just low charge in general, not being in these environments that create the charge. But another one is, um, or one that breaks it down is um, certain toxins um, like heavy metals um, or um, glyphosate has directly been shown to interfere with the ability of water to structure itself. And, and ultimately, for people who are listening who don't know what that is, it's a pesticide that's put on like 
so many foods in this country. And yeah, it's basically yeah. what, if you go to Lowe's and you get Roundup, that's what glyphosate is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, th that has been directly shown in Pollock's lab to break down structured water. But generally there's this idea of inflammation or oxidative stress, you know, these free radicals and there's different toxins that can be that, or there's different molecules made by the body that play an important role. They're signaling molecules. They tell the body kind of the state of the, the cellular health of the body. Um, but if they get become too excessive, these things can damage things. And so a free radical is something that wants to have another paired electron. It wants to steal an electron. And electrons are negatively charged. So it looks for areas to steal negative charge from. And structured water is very negatively charged. And so it can steal electrons from that. So if we get in this state of inflammation or oxidative stress, it can damage the structured water. Um, another thing that's been directly shown to uh, prevent structured water from forming is electromagnetic fields or non-native electromagnetic fields. Um, I think 15 to 20% decrease in structured water formation from those. Um, so obviously that's something very relevant to our technologically advanced world. Um, but yeah, so those things like that. And so, but it's, but it's all about getting charge into your body so that your, your body can use that to make the structured water. What do you think about like the grounding mats and the grounding pillowcases and all that? I bought my family all that stuff for Christmas. Yeah. So there are many ways that we gain charge. So all the energy from the earth comes from the sun, everything. So whether that is, you know, the sun directly hitting us or the sun concentrating ions into the ionosphere and then lightning striking the earth and depositing electrons into the earth. And then we contact the earth or whether it's us, the sun concentrating um, energy into other animals or plants. And then we eat those things and we try and harvest energy from those. Everything comes from the sun. Yeah. And so these days, you know, we're taught in biochemistry that all your energy comes from food. And that's not the case um, because you can get energy from directly from the sun or from contacting the earth. Um, and, you know, that's the electro, the, uh, the uh, study of electrostatics, like in electrodynamics, like if two conductive surfaces come in contact with each other, the area that's in higher concentration of energy will flow into the area of lower. And there's no way I'm going to ever have more energy than the earth. So as soon as I touch the earth, it flows into me through our fascial connective, connective tissue system. Yeah. Um, but also light hitting our skin is converted into DC electricity. Electrons, so um, which happens through the molecule DHA, which is a fatty acid that comes from animal foods, um, or when light hits melanin, which melanin is this pigment uh, of our skin, or it's also concentrated throughout the body. It's not just what controls the pigment of our skin, um, but when it light hits melanin, melanin can create electrons from some of the water in the body. So there's many ways that our bodies can gain these electrons. It's all about gaining electrons. Um, cause your body uses those to structure water and then also create an energy gradient that not only does the work of moving fluid, but also powers the little batteries we know in our cells called mitochondria. Um, so it's all fairly simple, you know, like we were outside for, you know, thousands of years, millions of years, if you include, um, you know, life before humans. Um, but it's, it's, it's all about us being able to harvest energy effectively from that environment that we're is natural to us. Yeah. And one of the things I love about um, pets can be a transfer of that energy. Like my, my dog is a Samoyed. And so she lays outside all the day long and she lays in the snow and 
she's super cuddly. And I'm like, oh, well, she's giving me all this grounding energy. You know, you talking about the sun, it kind of makes me think about how we demonize these things. We demonize mm -hmm. the sun, we call it a bad thing. And it's like, well, in addition to vitamin D, it's all that, you know, you know, electric energy for our heart and our bodies, you know, and I mean, there's probably a million things we don't know that we're getting from the sun, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, the whole demonization of foods like, like salt is another one that just blows my mind. I read, uh, Dr. James D. Nicolantolonio's uh, book, the salt fix. And I was, he, that's another book that I was like, my mind was just going the whole time mm -hmm. I was reading it. I'd love to hear your take on salt and sodium in relation to heart and how we're misunderstanding it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, from a big picture point of view, we're basically just big bags of salt. Um, that's what we are. All of our cells have ionic concentrations of minerals, sodium, potassium, calcium, chloride, um, which is what salt is. So to think that salt is bad for us um, is kind of ridiculous. But from a more scientific point of view, you know, the idea that, especially like high blood pressure, that's what people think. Right. Um, you know, you eat too much salt, um, it'll give you high blood pressure. Um, and so, you know, the thinking from that came from, um, from the fact that, you know, if you have too much, um, if you have, if your kidneys are filtering out a ton of, uh, minerals, um, because, because you had high blood pressure, you yeah. know, then, then there was this idea that, oh, the minerals must be what's causing it. Right. But in reality, it's, it's kind of the opposite. Um, you have too like, and there's studies that show that like, if you give a diuretic and you're flushing out fluid, okay. right. Um, that a lot of that, um, salt is lost with that fluid because the salt has to be dissolved in something to get out of the body. Um, but if they took, if they, if they took salt in with it, they lost more fluid, which decreased the blood pressure. Right. So it doesn't make sense. Like, so if, if we were holding on, like if your body doesn't have enough salt, it wants to hold on to it. So if we, if we give your body salt, it says, oh, we can release this. And so it lets out more salt with more fluid, decreasing the blood pressure. Um, whereas if you restrain from, from eating salt, then your body has to hold on to all the salt it can and thereby hold on to fluid, increasing the blood pressure. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't really make sense. And, you know, the studies back up the fact that it's it's not that it's not the salt that's causing high blood pressure. It's insulin resistance, really, which is like processed food diet and poor light environments and things like that. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, like the research doesn't even back it up. But if you convince people that salt causes high blood pressure, and you make them restrict salt, it creates higher blood pressure, and you can prescribe more medications, which is kind of the theme. Um, it's yeah. it's kind of a money making thing. So yeah, there's not money in curing people of diseases, is there? Yeah. Right. And yeah. plus those I minerals tell that people, come in I'm salt like, are incredibly important. Yeah. I always tell people when you get the sugar out, you get to eat more salt. You, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's one of those things where if you're not eating copious amounts of sugar, you're not going to be retaining sodium quite as much. So. Yeah. I mean, we're made of salt, water, protein, and saturated fat. And, you know, aside from the water, the other three are demonized, like they're bad for us. Like, how can they be bad for us? That's what we're made of. That's literally what keeps our body functioning is those raw materials. And there's lots of other things that keep it functioning too. But like, if you, if you have those things, minerals, water, saturated fat, and protein, and then you apply energy to that system, that's what maintains health. Yeah. Like human cells are saturated. They're, they're 50, 50% saturated fats, right? I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. I know red meat is another food that's demonized when it comes to heart health. Yeah. And it's it's all based on the theory of Ansel Keys and his and his cholesterol theory of heart disease, which the science he did back in the 50s was really bad science. Um and there's actually there's actually like after the theory was hypothesized, they actually tested it very heavily. There's actually been like five, six studies that really tested the um, you know, the replacing of saturated fat with unsaturated fat. Um, and they showed higher levels of heart disease and all kinds of disease, but they didn't really publish those studies at first. And they didn't publish them in, in big um, journals, even when they did get published. So lots of people didn't read them and they kind of left out data. And there's this whole story um, behind this of how they admitted data because the theory had already taken off. And so anything with saturated fat was demonized, including red meat, which A, makes no sense from a historical perspective because humans have been eating red meat for you know, again, thousands to millions of years, if you, depending on how far back you go and, and which of our ancestors you want to go to. Um, but there's evidence that even it was the diet that made us human. Um, you know, when we started doing that, it was one of the things that contributed to us becoming what we are today. Uh, if we hadn't done that, then so how could the diet that made us human be the one that's also killing us? It yeah. makes no sense whatsoever. And that's where this logic comes into play. Um, but then you look at the science behind it too, and there's really no evidence for the fact that saturated fat, red meat are causing disease. Um, there's like some associational research that shows that it's more associated with some diseases, um, but they're not really good at fleshing out the differences and all the different things that people do. Associational studies are the lowest form of research for a reason, because you can't prove that an association is something that causes something. Um, and they're really designed to be done so that you can go and do randomized controlled trials to test that association. But unfortunately, most of our nutrition guidelines and um, from government agencies and academic institutions is based on these very low quality studies that totally contradict historical, you know, um, historical habits of, of humans. Um, so it's it's just this big story that's been thrown in front of our faces in order to sell certain things, which is kind of the nature of capitalism. Um, but whether those things are certain drugs or certain processed foods, um, you know, because if you convince people that saturated fat and red meat are bad, you can convince them to buy more processed foods like Cheerios, which are heart healthy, right? Uh, no, not so much. Except um, for all the glyphosate in it, but oh well. Yeah, right. And so, or if you can be able to salt is bad, then you could, they stop eating salt and then they get higher blood pressure and then you can sell them or you sell them blood pressure meds and convince them that cholesterol in their blood is bad, which tells us absolutely nothing about risk of heart disease. Then you can sell more cholesterol medications. Um, and so it's just this, this thing that like our, our medical advice has been hijacked by industry. Yeah. Um, and that's not a story that is, there is plenty of documentation that exactly what has happened. Um, Cause medicine is, is a business, you know, and there's lots of good, well-intentioned people in medicine, but the system is designed to sustain itself and to sustain itself. It has to make money and that's yeah. the way that it does it. Um, and so we have to be conscious consumers of, of that kind of narrative and that story. Yeah. I think it's, you, you have a really good quote at the end of your book about nutritional and, and medicine dogma and how, you know, like you went, you did actually a really good book in the uh, job in the book talking about that whole heart diet heart hypotheses and Ansel Keys and the whole history, um, and 
you know, this idea that when a, a groundbreaking, you know, and it, it wasn't even like that groundbreaking the study, but he just was such a good marketer and he got everybody on board. And once you get the USDA and the Eisenhower's, you know, um, doctor and all these other organizations on board. And then, you know, if anybody questions, you know, that's the thing about when you create this dogma and this religion almost, and then even the studies that came out that said that, you know, were proved that or showed that it was different. They were afraid to put it out there because they didn't want to be. And we, and this continues to this day. And that's why I think it is smart, you know, for you and other people in this industry to have this open mind and be like, you know, I've changed my thoughts on certain things as, as new information has come out. And, you know, I think it's really important to be flexible and be open to new information. My I did a um, episode last week on the seed oils. And I did talk a little bit about Ansel Keys and, and that whole study. And what's your feeling on seed oils? Are you one of those, like, it will not cross my lips? Or are you sort of in between? Uh, no, they definitely, I will definitely not eat seed oils. Um, they are, you know, they're a very new food. Um, and, you know, they, they were originally made to lubricate engines. Um, but uh, they they found that they were a very cheap way to replace more expensive forms of fat in food in the food supply, and so they were they were used to do that. They were hydrogenated and used to do that. Um, but they're a very new and foreign food, and basically, we have a like humans have a certain physiology that has been tuned for millions of years by the natural environment. So that was natural foods, natural light, natural earth environments. Um, and when we start changing that too rapidly, whether it is these foods that have never before been seen by our physiology or light that's never been seen before by our physiology, like, like the process through lighting, then those things have to be um, in, uh, guilty until proven innocent, right? And unfortunately, the research has not proven them innocent. Um, but um, but yeah, so these things are highly inflammatory, meaning they're prone to oxidation. So I talked about structured water and how things that uh, cause inflammation and oxidative stress can damage structured water. So this is one of the things that can do it. Um, it's also um, high in omega-6 fats, which everybody wants to take all these fish oils. And I... I say that the problem is not that you don't have enough fish oil it's that you have too many seed oils mm -hmm. um so stop eating the seed oils and you don't need all these omega-3s like um, you get plenty from food if you eat good animal foods um things like that but also there's this aspect of you know there's saturated versus unsaturated fat there's omega-6 omega-3 but there's also this classification of of plant fat versus animal fat plant fat are phytosterols uh animal fats cholesterol um and we are animals we use cholesterol. That is what we use. We can use phytosterol in a pinch, but it's not as functional for us as cholesterol. And so there's studies that show that um, phytosterol can get um, can get deposited around the valves of the heart uh, in different areas of the arteries. Phytosterol, if, if your body is forced to make, um, make up the red blood cells with phytosterol, the red blood cells become rigid, which can predispose us to stroke um, and, and lots of issues with plant fat. Uh, so really animal fat is what is ideal for us um, and it would have been you know consistent throughout our our time here on earth so um the seed oils are are bad news and you know it's not to say that 
um, eating a little bit of them here and there isn't going to kill you or anything, but it's, the problem is that they're so pervasive throughout our food supply. And, and especially if you're eating a processed food diet, um, and even, you know, there's even some studies that show that, um, you know, the force fed, the animals who are force fed these high grain and, and seed oil diets, their tissue changes too. And we get more omega-6 in there. So, yeah, I think it's a problem. Um, but, uh, and it's not something that I, um, recommend <laughs> and uh, we should stick to those animal fats. Well, and you talked about the, the, um, rigidity of, of our arteries. That's exactly the opposite of what we've been told for years is that saturated fats were the ones that did that. And now, you know, so, you know, we have to be open to science evolving and, and be willing to recognize that perhaps previously they were wrong. What are some other foods that you would call like kryptonite for the heart? Anything else that we should be? Um, I think, I mean, the main ones are grains, sugar, and vegetable oils, um, you know, or seed oils. Uh, those are the biggest, you know, culprits these days. Um, and it's not to say that people didn't eat grains historically, but it really hasn't been that long that people have been eating grains, mm -hmm. uh, at least in the quantities that they eat them today. Um, and, you know, the only real natural form of sugar is from fruit, um, like local fruit in season. And even historically, it was much less sweeter than the fruit that we have today. Mm -hmm. um, so you really just have to pay attention, like those three things. Like if you get rid of those three things, you're going to, that's like 70% of the battle right there. Yeah. Uh, you're going to be feeling a lot better from a dietary perspective. Um, uh, but, you know, um, I think that, uh, I think, it's not like it's evil or kryptonite, but I think that calcium is overemphasized oh um, as far as like people just throwing down the calcium supplements. Well, um, the thing that concerns me the most is Tums. Cause if you think about it, people, mm -hmm. I mean, those super strength, extra strength Tums, you know how much calcium is in one of those and people pop them all day long. Yeah. Oh I think they yeah. should be illegal. Yeah. And I think that, you know, obviously calcium is important. We need calcium for lots of physiological things. Um, but if we're in a state of like inflammation and damage to the artery um, and, and things like that, then having too much of, of a mineral like that could yeah. increase the deposition of, of calcium to the artery. It can also create issues um, with muscle contraction, which is hard as a muscle. Um, so yeah, you know, different things like that. Um, I think that there's too much emphasis put on vitamin K1 and we need K2. Mm -hmm. uh, K2 is a real important one, which we get from animal foods. I mean, K1 is necessary as well, but there's there's too much emphasis on that. We really need K2, which we get from animal foods. Um, well, yeah. and the thing about K, vitamin K, is aren't a lot of people told to avoid it because doesn't it, it, it is coagulation? Well, in, in the case of K1, yes, it is. Yeah. It plays a, a big role in the uh, the cascade of clotting factors um, The that... Uh, that um, when your body decides it needs to clot, it's necessary to have K1, mm -hmm. um, which sometimes it does need to clot. Like it's doing that for a reason, you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, K2 is the one we really need. And we're not really good at converting K1 to K2. So we really need to get it from from our diet, which again, animal source foods are are where we get that. And then things like fermented foods, right? And Yeah, so fermented foods, you know, especially if it's a, food that's higher in plant toxins than you know, fermenting it can break down some of those lectins and things like that. Um, you know, fermented foods, 
I think that I don't know that they're doing much for like our um our gut bacteria. Um I think that they are um fermented the benefit of fermented foods is you're breaking down, you know, certain plant toxins, the things that make foods hard to digest. So it allows us to extract things better from that food. Um, but I don't think that um, the way you change your gut bacteria and make it strong is to change what you eat. Um, so your gut bacteria are feeding off of what you eat. Um, but, you know, for the benefit of fermenting is preparing food to extract nutrients from it. Um, and then, you know, your, your gut bacteria will change based on what you're eating. So if you're eating more protein and animal foods, it'll start burning. Uh, or the gut bacteria will start burning different things and new species will come about. If you start burning more fiber and things like that, then, you know, the gut bacteria will change again and, and we'll start using that fiber. So like, that's how you change your gut bacteria and then also stop killing it, stop taking antibiotics and things like that, that just yeah. completely wipe out the gut bacteria. Um, that can create a big issue. Um, but yeah. What do you, what are some of the foods that we should be getting for our heart? Yeah. Uh, I mean, everything we need for the heart comes from these animal foods. Um, so, uh, if you, I mean, basically when, you're hungry, your body's saying, I want nutrients and I need energy. Now we can get energy from lots of different places, but we do need some from food. Um, and so energy is the form in the form of fats or carbohydrates and, um, and nutrients are proteins, vitamins, and minerals. Uh, if you look at animal foods, um, they're the most bioavailable form of that protein, vitamins, and minerals. Uh, which means means we can extract nutrients from those foods very well, um, and then, like I said, our body is is love saturated fat, and that's what we get from animal foods. But a few things in particular, a few nutrients in particular that are um, good for heart health is the K two that we mentioned, because um, K two is what's responsible for taking those minerals and depositing them in bone and teeth and things like that, and keeping them away from the artery. Um, but also, um, you know, like in muscle meat and especially in like organ meats, uh, CoQ10 really important, you know, especially for the heart, because I mean, they're important for mitochondria in general, but it's really important for the heart because the heart is one of the tissues that's densest in mitochondria. Um, so it's really important for that because CoQ10 plays a role in, you know, the electron transport chain. Yeah. And like sardines um, are kind of a good source of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And definitely. the sad thing about statins is they deplete CoQ10. So it's kind yeah. of like this. They destroy it. And there's lots of counterintuitive things about statins when it comes to heart health. Um, that being one of them, uh, is that they they uh, they deplete CoQ10. They also cause insulin resistance, which is a huge risk factor for atherosclerosis. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you think about things like beet chews? Um, I I think there are much better ways to get nitric oxide uh, okay. than a beet. Because um, that's beet important for our heart, the nitric oxide, right? Well, it's important for blood flow, like as far because nitric oxide is made by the lining of the artery, uh, by the endothelial cells, um, and it's responsible for dilating the blood vessels so that we can get blood flow uh, and blood uh, moving through there. So when that structured water forms, lots of it can move through it. Um, but infrared light, so just the, the endothelial cells are going to produce nitric oxide well if they're healthy. And the way we keep them healthy is we protect them with structured water. If they're protected, they will do their job. And nitric oxide, it'll be produced uh, in, in high amounts. And that's what we look at the studies with infrared sauna use on endothelial health, nitric oxide skyrockets. Um, so it's really the sun is that's going to get us our nitric oxide production. Plus, when we get sunlight, 
our, our blood vessels dilate trying to get to the surface of the skin to soak up that sunlight. Um, so that's incredibly important. Um, so light is what's really driving uh, the health of the arteries um, through that nitric, nitric oxide production. Um, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, this is stuff that's like so out there for so many people to be hearing, like I need to get out in the sun for my heart and, you know, but it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, what are some of the things, I mean, what do you think about supplements like magnesium and, um, B vitamins? Are you for supplements supporting heart health? I mean, they have their place in certain situations. Um, but I, I want to get away from, and this is a, this is an issue I have with the functional medicine community, um, is that it's become just as, um, uh, I guess, um, it's the same kind of thinking as Western medicine. It's just, instead of using medications, they're using supplements, right? Yeah. So it should be first lifestyle and then supplement, which is what they're called your lifestyle with these, these supplements, right? So if you're not trying to get all your nutrients from your food, and then getting a little extra for their supplement, if necessary, uh, then you're missing the point. Um, so, and because we, you know, we really don't know how well these supplements are absorbed when, you know, they're just these isolated nutrients. I mean, I kind of think of it as a processed food a little bit. Um, it's not to say that supplements don't have a benefit um, or that they haven't helped people, or if people take them, they feel benefit. I'm never going to take that away from them, but we have to get away from, this taking this thing and now I'm protected from this. It has to be lifestyle first. It has to be the way you live your life. How much sun are you getting? How much grounding are you doing? How much uh, love and appreciation are you expressing? Like um, all these different things, like how, like, are you minimizing your non-native EMF exposure? Um, are you moving your body? Like all these different things. Are you eating a good diet? Like those are the things that are really going to create health. And there's no replacement for that. Absolutely none. Yeah. You can choose certain things to, again, supplement that lifestyle if you want to boost this or that, or if you have a specific issue, um, but it should always be lifestyle first. Yeah. That's it. And that's kind of, it's, yeah, the word supplement is that it's in addition to, not instead mm -hmm. of, and I think you're right that a lot of times it is easy to think that I'm just going to use these to fix you know, control my symptoms or fix the problem. Yeah. And it can kind yeah. of, and unfortunately, like in functional medicine, I hear stories all the time uh, with clients that I went to this functional medicine provider, they took some blood work and they went to all my blood work and they gave me 10 or 15 supplements. Mm -hmm. And they said, all right, um, take these and you, and you should feel better. And it's just like, that's, that's expensive. First of all, <laughs> very expensive. I'd rather people spend their money on more lifestyle changes and, and changes to their home and things that help protect them. Um, but it's also just not going to work. Um, yeah. It's just not going to create health in the way that people really need it and want it. Well, while we're on this topic though, I do want to talk about this substance called, I don't even know how to say it. Uabane or how do you say it? Yeah. Wabane. Wabane. Yeah. And so it's, it's one, you know, product is from the Lalana plant um, that. So wabine is something that you make internally, like your, your adrenal glands make this, um, and it signals or it, in, it tells the heart uh, or tells the, uh, the autonomic nervous system to signal more parasympathetic to the heart. Yeah. So this parasympathetic, this rest and digest, this calming aspect of the nervous system. Um, and so when, you know, the body feels like that is needed, then it will secrete it from, um, the adrenal glands, uh, which again, you know, is, is that lifestyle thing. Let's balance the autonomic nervous system first. However, 
in some people who are really far down the line of disease, it can be useful um, for someone with like angina or um, heart failure or things like that, because it can really, you know, stimulate this parasympathetic signaling to the heart, which really gives the heart a break. Um, and so um, it's, uh, they've, they found that it's also produced by this plant, um, I think native to Brazil. I can't remember. Um, but, um, but yeah, and you can, you can get it and you can take that and it's been shown to, um, you know, help people with those types of issues. So kind of get that heart out of that fight or flight mode because it does, mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to get out of that when, like I said, you've yeah. had that gas pedal down all the way to the floor and you don't, you're not yeah. sleeping and it's like this self-fulfilling cycle. Yeah. Especially with, you know, a lifetime of that type of thinking and you kind of getting trained in that and it's hard to get out of it sometimes. Yeah. And you, you know, you talked about stress. What are some of the things that you like to do to kind of, besides, you know, the, the infrared sauna and grounding, mm -hmm. what are some of other things you like to do to lower your stress levels? Yeah. Um, well, I think that when we think about stress, we have to think about it. Like, have you ever, have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and momentarily you forgot where you were, or what day it was or something. And it takes you about 10 seconds to orient. Like, Oh yeah. You know, you remember where you are. Well, that 10 seconds is pretty stressful because you don't know where you are. You don't know what time it is, which is very disorienting. Uh -huh. Um, and so that's the way, like when your body is in sympathetic and this, this stress state, that's because it's getting signals that it doesn't know where it is. doesn't know what time it is. And the things that tell it what time it is are light and where you are on the earth. It wants to know those things. Uh, it wants to know, uh, the people that are around you and are giving you good vibes and things like that. And so putting your body in those environments that tell it where it is and what time it is, which is circadian rhythm and syncing your body up to the day night cycle, um, and grounding, like you mentioned, but also, you know, kind of going through your, your relationships and, and like, which ones are serving you, which ones aren't, you know, is this person, um, a positive loving relationship, or uh, is this someone who's kind of toxic and not doing a lot of taking from me more than we're giving each other, you know, um, those types of things are incredibly ramping up to our nervous system. And if you have stresses in your life that, again, are making you feel out of control, um, like that one in mind, um, those are the stresses that are worse for your health. And they've done studies on this. People who are in companies and control their amount of stress um, have way less health issues than people who are in companies and um, have the same amount of stress, but they're out of control. Like they don't have predictable hours or predictable pay or job security or things yeah. like that. Um, it's the same amount of stress as someone who's in control of the whole company and has all that stress to deal with, but they're more in control of that. Yeah. Um, and so that is, it's huge um, to, to look into your life and those stresses that make you feel like you're in unpredictable situations or out of control. You want to try and mitigate those where you can, can't always do it. Um, but um, those are the things to pay attention to. Yeah. Robert Sapolsky, is that who you're talking about his research, but you know, the, yeah, he, he wrote that book, um, uh, why zebras don't get ulcers and yeah he, there's a really good movie i'll i'll post it that he did i'll post it in the show notes because it's it just kind of helps to visualize that idea of that feeling of the out of control feeling contributing mm -hmm. to stress um well we're at our hour here i was hoping to try and get done even a little bit earlier but it was just so interesting and thank you so much for your time um I just wanted to maybe give you the last word and also let know, people know where they can find you and anything exciting. I think you, are you working on another book? 
I am. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's a final word you want to have, I'll let you have it. um, yeah, I mean, so lots of times people consume this health information. There's a lot of information out there. And I think a good way to frame it, because it can get confusing and people will be like, well, this person says that this person says that Yeah. I think that a really good way to frame thing is to just start asking yourself, you know, what is real? Like what is like real as far as like, what have humans been around for a long time? You know, like we have not been around processed foods. We have not been around social media and very superficial relationships. Um, and we have not been around artificial lighting. We have not been around, um, you know, living indoors and away from contact with the air. So you have to start asking yourself, is this real or is this this hyper reality that humans are created for ourselves? Like this person is saying this is healthy, but this is really unnatural, you know, and natural is this word that gets thrown around, but you just have to start thinking about things in the context of that because it starts to make things simple. It starts to make you realize instead of focusing on this thing, like this person said, this is good. This person says it's not like you can kind of start making your own decisions. Um, you know, this is something that's really not native to humans. Um, if you think about things, you know, from a historical perspective, so maybe it's not the best for me. Um, and it's just, it's just kind of helpful to start thinking about things in that way. Hmm. Yeah, just have some common sense and connect and listen to our body. It's funny, I just had this thought pop in my head about how you wrote a book about the heart, yet it's really how to live a healthy life. I mean, when you take care of your heart, you're taking care of your brain. When you're doing all these things that you've told us, you're lowering your risk of cancer and other diseases. And, and maybe it's the heart is that center of the body. And when we take care of that, then it's, you know, it's kind of like Western medicine breaks us up into, you know, go to one doctor for one section of your body. And, you know, you kind of just are tying it all together for us and really letting us know how we as humans can live in a healthy way. What's the upcoming book title? I don't know the title yet, um, but the topic is is pain, and it's it's similar to the heart book in that you know there's a topic it's centered around, but it's it's health in general. Like it's it's more aspects of things that I've discovered about health, and I'm just relating them to chronic pain now, explaining pain rather than um, you know you know the just this broad scope of everything, like just centering it on one topic. So many people need that. So I'm, I'm definitely going to be looking for that. And, um, so where, and where can people find you? Yeah. So my website is resourcethroughhealth.com. Um, people can find me there. Um, I'm on social media. Um, it's just Dr. Stephen Hussey, Dr. Stephen Hussey. Uh, people can reach out to me there. Um, my books are on Amazon. Uh, if people don't want to use Amazon, they can go to the publisher website, which is Chelsea Green Publishing. Uh, they can buy it there too. I'll link all of that down in the show notes. So thank you so much for your time today. And this just incredible book and and help you know helping us to understand our hearts but our health yeah of course thanks for having me thank you all for listening today make sure to like and subscribe so you don't miss anything and this is your perfect metabolism podcast <laughs>